Well, our study of Luke, believe it or not, began on November 8th of 2020. That means next week when we conclude, we will have been in this wonderful gospel for 84 weeks. That's 21 months, or a little more than a year and a half. And we're concluding this week and next in one of what may be one of my favorite passages of the entire gospel. Um, And it's my favorite for a few reasons. Uh, One, uh, I really relate to Luke's depiction of sinful people struggling with real disappointment, um, discouragement, and doubt being met with uh, and by a gracious, merciful, loving, faithful, peace-bestowing Savior. Uh, Two, I really like the obvious emphasis that he, Luke, places not only on the Word of God, but the dependence upon the Spirit of God uh, to know and understand um, the Word of God. Love the emphasis on the Word of God and also love the emphasis placed upon our need of the Spirit to help us to understand it. And three, I'm encouraged uh, in this passage in particular by the reminder of the simplicity and sufficiency and necessity of the gospel message and the importance um, of the gospel in terms of it being believed and shared. And then finally, I'm, I'm challenged by this passage and by the instruction that we are not to engage in uh, gospel work apart from the promised Spirit and His power from on high. And all of that is encompassed or in, included in that passage that Matt has just read for us. And we're going to bring all that together into just three points tonight. You'll find the outline in the normal place of your bulletin. We're going to look at burning hearts, open minds, and promised power. Okay, burning hearts, opened minds, and promised power. Children, you're going to find the words in your normal place in the bulletin. You're listening for words like disappointment and doubt, gospel, forgiveness, I, and the next three you have the singular and the plural, so I or eyes, mind or minds, heart or hearts, and scriptures and Jesus. And as is our custom, let's go to the Lord in prayer before we begin. Well, Father, by your Spirit, as always, week after week, we pray the same, that you would grant power to the preaching of your word. And we ask every week in and week out for you to grant us eyes to see and ears to hear the truth that is found here in the gospel, that we might apprehend and appraise Christ and His gospel and the truth that is there. We, we ask that you would awaken us, awaken our attention, and that you would convict us and challenge us, and that, that you would all also encourage us and comfort us, um, refresh us by the same word, 
I am, again this week as I was last, unfit from the, for this task that, to which you've called me, and so I pray for your spirit to fill me and that you would grant me grace that I might do something good for you this evening, something good for you and for the church of Jesus Christ. And we pray these things for Christ's sake and for the sake of His church. Amen. Well, let's look first at the burning hearts. We're going to look at these verses from 13 to 32. Our context, for those of you that are new with us or are just visiting with us, our context is the same as it was last week. Of course, we've been going verse by verse through, passage by passage through the the Gospel of Luke. Uh, But it's the same context this week as was last week. And it's the uh, Sunday morning, it's the first Sunday morning, or it's the first day of the week. It's resurrection morning, which means it's the first uh, Easter morning. And word has spread that Christ is not in his tomb. He's not to be found. He had been buried, but, he was, but the tomb is now empty. And while there are some who remembered, if you remember from last week, there are some who remembered his words and believed that he, in fact, had been raised from the dead. There are others who had not remembered his words and were not believing that he had been raised from the dead. And we meet two of those individuals uh, here on the road to Emmaus. They're traveling on that seven-mile journey from Jerusalem to Emmaus, one uh, by the name of Cleopas. Uh, The other, we don't know his name. It could be a friend. It could be his wife. Some even believe that it might have been Luke himself, but we're not sure who the other is. Uh, But regardless, uh, Cleopas and this companion were disciples of the Lord Jesus, and as they're walking on the road, They're talking about everything that had taken place, and not just over the last four days or so, but for a week or longer, maybe. Um, They're talking about uh, His ministry of proclamation and presence and power. They're talking about all that they had heard through that ministry and seen through that ministry. Uh, They're talking about all uh, that they had been a part of. Uh, Being only seven miles away, they probably hadn't been with him from the beginning, but they've been with him for a little bit, and so they're they're talking about all the things that they had seen and heard, and and they're talking about all the hopes and dreams that they would have had or had come to have since encountering him. But they're they're also talking about how those hopes and dreams had come crashing to the ground. They're talking about that they had seemed having um, been dashed on his cross, that they had seen him crucified upon. The language actually seems to indicate that as they're walking and talking, they're also, it, it's growing a little heated here and there. They're, they're actually arguing or maybe even debating about some of those things. And I think that arguing and the debating was actually coming from the fact that they had been discouraged and they had been disappointed And as they're walking, Luke says that Jesus drew near and went with them. And he also says, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. So for some reason, the Spirit had had kept them in the dark regarding who it was that they were talking to. They didn't realize that it was the one in whom they were mourning. They did not realize it was the one in whom or whose well-being that they, they desired to see and longed for. They didn't understand that it was Him right there in their presence, and not only walking with them, but now talking with them. And He actually asks them a question. What are you guys talking about? 
And they look at him not only with sadness, but probably with some dismay because of of what just happened in the last 72 hours. And then there was also this this confusion and this inquisitiveness because they're looking at him and they're going, and they're thinking to themselves, could this guy have asked a more ignorant question? I mean, they're they're, they're just thinking about the question a little bit and, and, and Cleopas responds, he says, are you... Are you the only visitor that is clueless about what's gone on these last few days? Do you have any idea? Do you not have any idea what's just happened? And it's kind of funny when you think about it, and it's really a definition of irony. Cleopas, who doesn't have really any clue about who he's talking to, is looking at the one who was the center of everything that had taken place. And asking him if he knew what had happened. And Jesus is probably probably struggling to not grin. Right? Not not to smile, not to laugh at this guy. And he says, What things? And to their credit, they set aside all the fear that they had experienced in the last few hours. They set aside all of the unknown. They set aside all of, all of the feelings that they had experienced after his arrest and flogging and murder. And they begin to confidently testify about what had just happened and who they believed Christ to be. And if I could paraphrase, I, they answered, Jesus of Nazareth, the one who's Words and deeds were so powerful that he could have only have been a prophet from God. There's no other way. And the one who we had placed all of our hopes and dreams and, and who we believed was the Messiah sent from God to deliver us from this tyranny of Rome, he was delivered over. The Messiah was delivered over. The one who is going to restore the nation has been delivered over by the religious establishment. They unjustly arrested him. They they took him and and trumped up charges and took him to the uh, the Roman leadership to kill him. And And that's what they did. And then this morning, the women who had prepared the spices and the ointment to go and and to take care of his body that had been placed in the tomb, when they when they arrived, he was gone. And when they came back to tell us, they said that they also saw angels. And those angels told them that that he had been risen from the dead. And some of us who were all together, they ran to, to see what had taken place, and they found it just as the women had said. The only problem was nobody has seen him. We don't know where he is. And interestingly, having heard their testimony... Jesus didn't do what many of us would have done at that time. Remember the, the, the sadness, the, the, the dismay that, that is overwhelming them. He, do, he doesn't empathize with them. He doesn't validate their feelings, take a feeling check. He simply rebukes them. He rebukes them for their lack of understanding. He says, Oh, and, and, and there's compassion in his voice. Don't get me wrong. Oh, foolish ones. Oh, foolish ones. 
You've been slow to grasp everything that's been going on. Everything that is taught has been taught to you through the Scriptures you've missed. Don't you remember that I said everything that has happened and was happening and or, or, or that would happen, has happened, and would be happening in the future, all of these things that have happened are necessary. The deliverance you were hoping for was only going to be secured through a Messiah that suffered. There was no other way. He was only going to take His rightful place as judge and king and ruler through His death and resurrection. I've been saying that. And then as they walk, Luke says, as they walk down the road, he begins to unfold the Scriptures to show them what he was talking about. He, he unfolds what we call the Old Testament. Probably started with Genesis 3. All pointed to him. He probably started with Genesis 3.15. And then he moved to chapter 22. And you're going to have to go look these up. Then he moved to chapter 22, and then probably stopped somewhere in Exodus, chapter 2, and chapter 12, and chapter 32, and then, and then brought out and looked at Leviticus 16, and then Numbers 21, and Deuteronomy 18, and Deuteronomy 27, and then Psalm 16, and Psalm 22, and Psalm 110, and Isaiah 49, and Isaiah 50, and Isaiah 53, and Jeremiah 20, and Daniel chapter 7, and Jonah, the entire book, and Zach, Zechariah chapter 3, 9, and 12, and 13. On and on and on. And you could make your own list. You could add to mine. And as he did, their hearts just began to burn with inside them. Burn inside them. Excited about what they were hearing. Excited about what they were now understanding. And so as you can imagine, when they arrive at Emmaus, and he begins to, he doesn't want to invite himself over. He doesn't want to impose. And so he you know, he's going to go. He's going to move on. And he bids them farewell. And they, and they beg him, don't go. Don't go. We don't want you to leave yet. Come over. Let's eat. Let's talk some more. Teach some more. Continue to show us the Scriptures. It's a, a strong persuading to which he cannot say no. And so when they arrive at the house, they begin, they sit down around the table and they very uncharacteristically, he's the guest, right? And so it would have been the host's role to do what he ends up doing. So I don't know if he takes it himself or if they're, they give him the bread, but he, he takes the bread and he breaks it. Right? He blesses it and breaks it. And when he did that, verse 31 says, their eyes were opened and they recognized him. And then he vanished <laughs> right before their very eyes. And what's interesting about this language that Luke uses, if you remember back in chapter 9, he uses the exact same language here in 24 as he did in, in Luke 9 in regards to breaking of bread and blessing that bread, and it was in the context of the feeding of the 5,000. And if you remember from chapter 9, as Luke is piecing this together as he did, right, it wasn't necessarily a, a chronologically in order, but he's placing this all together, making his argument. But in, his, in this gospel, he, he play, right behind the feeding of the 5,000, he places Peter's confession that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of the living God. 
So you have a breaking of the bread, and then you have this declaration of who Christ is. And then also, interestingly enough, he uses language here to in, indicate that this wasn't something that happened. Um, they didn't recognize, them, recognize him suddenly on their own. This was something that happened to them. Their eyes were opened for them. It was the Spirit who gave them eyes to the exact point. And Jesus has been kept by the Spirit, unrecognizable to them, waiting for the exact point in time for them to realize who He is and for that unveiling to take place. And the Spirit, by, by, by God's plan and the Spirit's power, they see the breaking of the bread and they understand who He is. That's not by accident. Their eyes were opened. And we need to pause here. All right, we're taking large chunks, so I want to pause in between these, and we need to pause and consider three things. First, we need to consider the presence of Jesus in our midst. Um, it's not uncommon uh, for us today, when we're in the midst of certain circumstances, it's not uncommon for me, and I'm assuming it's not uncommon for you, all right? But it's not uncommon for us in the midst of circumstances to miss the all-important truth that Jesus is in our midst even when we don't recognize Him or acknowledge Him. Unfortunately, we often miss Him in those moments of despair and disappointment and distress and disillusionment and discouragement and doubt and even in those moments of depression. We miss just how closely He really is. We think we're in, these, we're in this place, this deep, dark recess, or the recesses that are dark where we can't be heard or we're not going to be found, thinking that He's distant when all along He's right in our midst, within arm's length, close enough to hear us, even when all we can do is whisper in the midst of our cries for help. Secondly, we need to consider the priority of Scripture. So the presence of Jesus in our midst and the priority of Scripture. As I mentioned, Jesus addressed the two on the road and, and He didn't begin at a place of validating their emotions. He began by bringing the word to bear on their situation. You see, again, too often we have the tendency to look for an experience or some kind of sign to bring us assurance in the midst of our difficulties, letting us know that He's with us. Too often we have the tendency to expect or to seek relief from our circumstances or deliverance from our pain or our sorrow. And brothers and sisters, we, first, we don't need an experience. And secondly, we need more than relief or deliverance. We need Jesus. Therefore, we need His Word. Too often we like the two on the road, have a tendency to interpret the Word through the lens of their circumstances. Or we have the tendency to do that. We have the tendency to look at our world and our circumstances and interpret it through, or, or, or we interpret the Word through the, the lens of our experiences. And what we need is for 
Christ by His Spirit to reorient us and to flip that, as Jesus does with these two. What does He do? He flips that and He, he causes them who, who were looking through the lens of their experience of Scripture to, to, to change so that they're looking, through, looking at their experiences through the lens of Scripture. What does the Bible say? What does the Bible bring to bear on our circumstances? And he does it for them, and we need him to do it for us. We have the tendency to live life based on what's not true. We have the tendency to live based upon lies that we have learned and what we believe. And what we need is to allow Christ, who said himself that he is the way, the truth, and the life, to speak to us through His Word and to transform us by the renewing of our minds by His Spirit who leads us into all truth. To experience His ministry of the Spirit and the, and the Word. And, and too often we have this tendency to attempt to meet our own needs in the midst of our distress and disappointment and disillusion and discouragement and doubt and despair and depression. And we do that by seeking the validation of our feelings. When really what we need to do, to paraphrase Dale Ralph Davis, we need to rub our noses in Scripture. He says, because we need more than relief, we need Jesus. And we will not grasp Him or understand Him unless we go to the Scriptures. Otherwise, we'll always be making Him something that He's not. And the same is true when we're ministering to others. Don't get me wrong, we need to empathize. We need to be compassionate. We need, we need to hear how people are feeling but empathy is not enough. People need Jesus. And again, to quote, uh, paraphrase Dale Davis, we should drag them into the Scriptures if we have to. We don't want to leave them outside. And thirdly, we need to consider the passion to be with and listen to Jesus. And having heard him explain this, the scriptures, the men, they feel that burning within their hearts, and they weren't ready to part from him. They wanted him to remain. They wanted to be with him. They wanted to listen to him. They wanted to see him. They wanted to learn from him. So they pleaded for him not to have that. And oh, that we would have that passion to be with and to hear Christ. Oh, that we would have that passion and, and plead with Him to stay. Oh, that we would have that passion to be in His presence, whether it be in the context of corporate worship, family worship, or private individual worship. Oh, that we would desire to be in settings where we would hear His Word read and preached and taught. Oh, that we would desire to dig diligently prepare to hear the Word and to diligently pray for the grace that we need to to receive it with faith and love and to lay it up in our hearts and to practice it in our lives as our confession says. Well, that brings us to verses 33 to 47 when we look at open minds. The minute they realize it was Jesus, they head back to Jerusalem. They can't wait to tell others what's happened. And when they arrived, they have found, found the apostles and others who had gathered there. And it sounded like the beginning of our worship service, right? Uh, just in the round, perpetually. He is risen. He is risen indeed. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Peter saw him. So did we. He is risen. He is risen indeed. They can't get over the fact that he's risen and that he's been seen. 
And as they're in the midst of that, as the two begin to tell their story of the walk and his arrival and all the things that he was saying and the breaking of bread and their recognition of who he is, he shows up. Just as fast as he had disappeared, he appears. And his first words were not what any of them were expecting. He looks at them all and says, peace to you. And I love how Ligon Duncan puts it. He says, may the favor of my Father that gives total well-being be upon you. What a blessing. Because consider the last 72 to 84 hours. What had been happening? They abandoned him. They denied him. Right? They had run from him at his most desperate hour. When he needed them most, they were nowhere to be found. And yet, when he sees them for the first time, he doesn't look at them and say, I told you so. He doesn't look at them and pile on the guilt. He doesn't look at them and go, why? He looks at them as the sinful people they are struggling again with that disappointment and that disillusionment and that discouragement and doubt and he meets them with grace and mercy and love and peace and he not only pronounces peace but bestows peace upon them. You're at peace with the Father. You're at peace with me. You're at peace with one another. You're no longer the Father's enemies. You're His children. You're no longer my enemies, you've been united to me. You're no longer at odds with one another. You've been united to one another. Don't be anxious anymore. Don't be anxious. Experience the peace that passes all understanding because you are in me. And I'm sure Someone in this room needs to hear that tonight. Someone in this room, maybe we all do, do we not? All of us, depending upon our week, regardless of the circumstances, we need to hear, whether it be due to our sin, whether it be due to discouragement or disillusionment or despair, doubt, we need to hear those words from the Lord Jesus, and they're coming from His, from His Word, so He's speaking to us, peace, peace be to you. May the favor of my Father that gives total well-being be upon you both now and forevermore. Hear that tonight. But we'd probably do the same thing, right, if we were them, and despite the peace that they've heard him pronounce, they're still startled and frightened. <laughs> and we get it, we understand that. Because um, they think he's a ghost, as we would have. But to assure them that he's not, and to assure them that he is in the flesh, though it is glorified, he attempts to put them at ease. Look at verse 38, he says, why are you troubled? Don't. Don't let doubts arise in your hearts. Look, look at my hands. Look at my feet. 
It is I myself. Touch, touch me. See. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And you would think that would satisfy him. It might have satisfied some of us. But it didn't. Right? It's still, the language here is it's still too good to be true. Right? There's no, there's just no way. There's, it's not possible because they're starting, starting to get over this. What this means, and it's just like, it's, it's still, still, we, we can't get over this. And so he tries one more time. He says, how about giving me something to eat? Little fish. Luke says they give him some and he eats it. And we wonder, do we not? We, we wonder, why, why Luke? Why all of these little details? Right? Why all of these things? By the way, this is all described here in Luke only. So why all, why all of these details? They seem to be meaningless, but we need to remember why Luke is writing. Right? What was his purpose in writing? He was writing so that there would be no doubt. Right? He, he's writing to, to t- take away the doubt of those who are believing in Christ it's, and that, it's the same reason that Jesus, uh, Luke is going to great lengths. It's the same reason Jesus is going to great lengths to, to prove that he is in a resurrected body. Because what is about to happen? Right? He wants them to believe to the point that they will be able to go and share it. And they're only going to do that if, they're, if they have a strong conviction that it's true. You've got to have the conviction that it's true before you go share it in truth, as truth. It's got to be a deep conviction that they hold because this is going to be a hill upon which they're all going to die. And I can imagine he takes the fish and he eats it. And maybe at that point a calm begins to settle in. They begin, begin to take a deep breath. The reality of the Messiah being in their presence. The Messiah, who was the suffering servant, is in their presence. The suffering servant who had come to deliver them was in their midst. And as that confidence starts to take hold and they start to come to that place, Jesus says, these are the words. These are the words. Guys, These are the words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. I've been telling you this over and over and over and over again. This isn't a new message. This isn't new news. It's good news, but it's not new news. I've been saying it, and it's now happened. The scriptures have been fulfilled. The law has been fulfilled. The prophets have been fulfilled. The wisdom literatures, all of it points to me. All of the words in the all of the words of promise from beginning to end, from Genesis to Malachi, all of those promises have been fulfilled by me. All of the promises there are yes and amen in me. And I've been telling you this. And at that moment, Luke says he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures. And the light bulbs go off. Right? The aha moments begin to take place. The connections are being made. The types and shadows, the things that he's been saying all along that they hadn't understood are now making sense. 
those that had been with him from the beginning, the things that he would do, the things that they would say, they would go, oh, that's what he was doing. Oh, that's what he meant by that. And then he repeats the same thing he's been saying to them over and over and over again in Luke 9 and Luke 18, where he said, thus, it is, it's, it's, you can just imagine, as all those light bulbs go up, then he says, I'm going to say it one more time when you can understand it. Thus it is written, the Christ should suffer and die on the third day, and, and suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. The gospel, it was the gospel that the Old Testament promised and pointed to. It was the gospel that Christ fulfilled. It was the gospel that the apostles, including Paul, preached. It was, in first, it was of first importance to Paul because it was of first importance to Jesus. It was of first importance to Jesus because it was in first, of first importance to the Father. And therefore, because the Father had shared it, it was of first importance with the law and the prophets and, and those who wrote the wisdom literature. Right? It, was, it was of first importance because this was God's the Father. It was His sovereign plan, predetermined plan from the beginning, and everything had been working to this point. That's why Paul wrote, Christ died for sinners according to the Scriptures. He was buried. He rose again according to the Scriptures. And brothers and sisters, we get excited about this as good Reformed folk, right? We get excited about this because we're strong proponents of the continuity of Scripture. We're strong proponents. You hear me say this every time we have, we baptize someone, but we believe that the Bible tells one story from beginning to end about one God who entered into one covenant, a covenant entered into one covenant of grace with one people. And this one covenant included one plan of redemption with one Savior for that one people. And that salvation that is provided in Christ is by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, and no one else. And we love telling that story. So much so that we call it biblical theology rather than reformed theology or covenant theology. But one of the pitfalls that we run into and that we need to be aware of and fight against is our propensity to be arrogant, to be quite honest. We can have the tendency in our excitement and in our fervor uh, for the gospel and for our defense of biblical theology to forget that our knowledge of the Scriptures only, is only possible because our minds have been opened to the Scriptures. We know what we know and we believe what we believe only because the truth has been revealed to us. Our minds have been opened to the Scriptures and we've been led into all truth by the Spirit who illuminates the Word for us. We're all on an equal playing field as far as that is concerned. And therefore, what should set us apart is humility and not arrogance. Our humility should be directly proportionate to our knowledge of the Scriptures and our understanding of the Scriptures. The more we know, the more we understand, the more humble we should be. 
Every time we open the Scriptures, we should pray for the Spirit to illuminate us. And every time we close the Scriptures, we, we should thank the Father and the Son and the Spirit for what we know and understand. Because the truth has been revealed to us and we've been able to understand it and apply it because of what God has done for us. And that brings us to the last point, our promised power. A year ago, if you remember, <laughs> sounds funny, doesn't it? Um, a year ago in chapter 9, I mentioned that there's this repetitive pattern that we see unfold in Scripture. It's that pattern of calling, giving, and sending. That may help you a little bit, but I'll just share this again. God called Adam and Eve out of hiding, gave them a promise, right? sent them out of Eden, Abraham, uh, God called Abraham, uh, gave him a promise of a name, a land, and a blessing, and then he sent him out of Ur to go to the promised land. He called Moses, gave him a staff and a spokesperson, and then sent him to the people of Israel and to Pharaoh. He called Israel out of Egypt, and then he gave them the law, and then sent them into the promised land of Canaan to be a blessing to all the nations. Uh, he called Isaiah, gave him clean lips, and then sent him out to speak to the people during the Assyrian judgment. He called Jeremiah and gave him his words and sent him out to speak to the people during the Babylon captivity and incursions. Uh, he called Ezekiel, gave him the spirit, and sent him to Babylon um, through the destruction of Israel, uh, Jerusalem. And then in chapter 9, we saw that same pattern that calling and giving and sending in Luke 9. He called the disciples. He gave them power and authority, um, a mission and a message. And he gave them directions and then he sent, him out, sent them out to the lost sheep of Israel. And we said at that time that what they were doing was on-the-job training for what was about to happen. And what was about to happen is happening here in our text. The on-the-job training then is for this moment Look again at verse 47. He says, Thus it is written, the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in His name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You're witnesses of these things. And behold, I'm sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you're clothed with power from on high. And He was calling them to be witnesses. He was giving them a message of proclamation, that same, his same message of proclamation. It included Christ's death and his resurrection. It, it included repentance and forgiveness. And then he said he was going to give them power on high, from on high. He was going to give them in the days ahead that same power that Paul says raised Christ from the dead. He was going to give to them. And what was that power? The power was the person of the Holy Spirit prophesied through Joel Through Joel, the Lord said, And it shall come to pass afterwards that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your younger men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my Spirit. And on that day of Pentecost, He fulfilled His promise. And the Spirit was given to them. And when the Spirit was given, He sent them on a global mission to all nations, sharing that message. And brothers and sisters, we should be challenged by that last sentence. 
We should make every effort to never engage in gospel work apart from the promised spirit in the power from on high. It's tempting to rely on our own power. It's tempting to believe in our own authority. It's tempting to rest in our own pragmatic methods and our own whimsical presentation of our own man-centered message. It's tempting to, to rest in that which is palatable to our culture. But we need to resist that temptation because we too are participants in a calling, giving, and sending. We've been called out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. We've been called from death to life. We have been called to salvation and called to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. And we've been given new hearts. We've been given the power through the Holy Spirit who indwells us and enables us to fulfill not only our call to obedience, but the ability to fulfill the mission to which we've been called. We've been given the gospel through which the Spirit works to change the hearts of sinners. This is why Paul says that the gospel is the power unto salvation. Because it's through the proclamation of the word that hearts are changed. We've been given the simple means of grace, of word, sacrament, and prayer through which the Spirit has chosen, or, or through which God Himself has chosen, and through which the Spirit works to bless His people that we may grow in grace. And we too have been sent. We've been sent to the nations to proclaim Christ and Him crucified, Him risen. And to proclaim repentance and forgiveness of sins. And my prayer is that we would be found faithful in that. Be found faithful. Fulfilling that which we've been called to fulfill. Going to whom, to whom we've been sent. To live and to walk in the power sent and given to us by the Father and the Son. Let's pray together.